what I would do is I would bring my focus right to the here and now. And I'd ask myself some questions to stop the loop starting, which was, is it happening now? You're driving a car. Did you get the call? Are you driving to the morgue? No. Do you need to do anything about that? No. So let it go. It's not happening right now. So don't waste your time and focus on something that's imaginary. Welcome to episode 395 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Danielle, Glenn, Janet, Dana, Violet, and Maria. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Danielle, Glenn, Janet, Dana, Violet, and Maria for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today. Joining me today is Amy. Welcome, Amy, to The Recovery Show. Thank you, Spencer. I'm really happy to be invited to share my experience, strength, and hope, especially around this topic of mother-son relationship. Thank you for that. And you brought us an opening reading called Hope. Tell us a little bit about that and read it. Yeah, this is a quote that I found. I made it into a canvas and I have it up in my house as a reminder. I really liked it. And it's from a writer, author, who has written some books and is currently on, I think, Facebook and Instagram. Her name is Nikki Bonas, and it's titled Hope. It says, if you only carry one thing throughout your entire life, let it be hope. Let it be hope that better things are always ahead. Let it be hope that you can get through even the toughest of times. Let it be hope that you are stronger than any challenge that comes your way. Let it be hope that you are exactly where you are meant to be right now and that you are on the path to where you are meant to be. Because during these times, hope will be the very thing that carries you through. And then I have another piece of this says, hope is an act of courage because you don't actually know how it all plays out. You don't actually know what lies around the bend, but you are free to trust you will keep growing over and over again. The sun will still rise in the sky and light will still pour in. Mm, Thank you for that. I remember At one point when my wife was still in the grips of her addiction, that the only thing that I knew about hope was that it meant that there was a possibility of change. I hear that in this quote. So thank you for that. Yeah, I always need that reminder because there's a fear that I developed, a fear of hoping. And I think that's common in this disease that if I hope, for something, I'll get disappointed again and again and again. So I, that's something that I'll talk about. But 
I had to rebuild that hope in my heart. And because I don't like feeling hopeless, that's for sure. I think it's really difficult to sometimes distinguish between hope and expectation. Mm -hmm. I think that's a danger for us sometimes. Yes, very much so. And in the 12 step program, it stands for hang on, pain ends. So that's a reminder to me hang in there, it'll end. Yeah. Why don't you give us a little bit of your story so we know where we're starting and where we're going? Okay. I'd like to tell the story, but I'd also like to give some strategies of what I used to help hold on to my serenity. Because I think with listeners who might identify with this, it's always nice to hear strategies of things that worked. And I'll talk about what worked for me and then how my son found his way to recovery and then how that changed our relationship. This is a unique relationship between a parent and a child. And I do want to clarify, I'm going to use mother-son because that's my experience, but this can be a parent of a, a, a child. It could be a dad and a daughter. It could be a parent of a teen or a young adult or even an adult child. So it's just the relationship I wanted to focus on because it's unique. And the way the disease affects this relationship is unique. I know a lot of your callers and your guest hosts have mentioned that this is a generational disease, that it's transferred. It can go way, way back. Yeah. And I think that's common. And certainly I am no exception to that. I have the double whammy on both sides. My parents have deep alcoholism in their family. My father was an alcoholic. And before he passed, he had 40 years of recovery. So he was the one that let us out of it and showed us the way. My mother was codependent, child of an alcoholic. This goes way back for me. Great-granddaughter, probably beyond. Granddaughter of the disease. I'm a daughter of the disease. I married the disease, and I gave birth to the disease. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who says that at one point he sat down with his grandmother before she passed on, and she helped him identify alcoholism in five generations of his family from like her grandparents down to his children, I guess. I I don't know exactly, but he said it just went through his family generation after generation. Yeah, it's fierce. It's a fierce disease. Even if you're not using a substance or you're active in an addiction. And I don't have an addictive personality. Somehow I got through the gauntlet. I don't know how, but but I definitely have the isms and the reaction to the behavior of the qualifiers in my life. It can skip a generation, but it doesn't really. It still has a presence. So I do a lot of work in that myself, ACA kind of work, and Mm -hmm. also with sponsees on how to break that. And I'll talk a little bit that later about how to break that, what I call a choke chain. (laughs) <laughs> the disease mm. has a choke chain on us. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how we, in my family, broke that chain and why that's important for the future generations, for our children. So about a year ago, Spencer, I was asking my higher power, when is this going to be over? I've got, <laughs> I've got 32 years in Al-Anon and ACA. I did them side by side in my recovery work. Uh-huh. And all my family's in recovery, which is a beautiful gift. When are we going to be done? <laughs> 
I got a really loud, a loud and very clear answer that you will never be done. There will always be the presence of this disease in your life. Mm-hmm. And right in that moment, I went into acceptance and surrendered, you know, step one and two. Yeah. And I said, okay, I'm not asking this question anymore. I accept this reality. I guess my, my choice is how do I respond to that reality? So that's why I've been in the program for all these years, and it will be a lifelong partnership for me. So you said Al-Anon and ACA. I can talk about how I found my way to the rooms. Yeah. It was my first husband's addictions. His whole life, he was addicted, and the disease started to accelerate pretty rapidly. And I'd heard about that, and I was actually witnessing that. It was destroying him, our life that we created, our marriage. So I needed some support. And the confusion of not knowing what was this huge force that was destroying everything I had worked hard for and loved. Mm-hmm. It takes no prisoners. And not understanding what was happening was really frightening. So I found my way to Al-Anon, and I'm grateful for that. I found my way to the rooms where I learned about the disease, and I learned about the strategies on how to find serenity in my own life, regardless of what was going on. I started my work, doing my own personal recovery work, and it was at a meeting. They were talking about this generational transfer, this aspect of the disease, and I got completely overwhelmed by fear, this fear rooted in me that I'd walk back through that door as a mother having to deal with my son, who at the time was 10, Mm. that I was going to come back in having to deal with his addictions. And that did manifest. I just was completely terrified. It was like, oh my God, that happened. Okay. It manifested. But you know what I found out, Spencer, it was neat, was I was walking back through that door as a different person. I had everything I needed to face that horrendous challenge. Now, I didn't know it'd be 25 years of it, but... (laughs) Oh, man. Yes. But I was comforted. The fear was rooted in there, but it didn't overwhelm me. It didn't take over my life. I was comforted that, you know what? You know what this is. You know the disease. Not like the first time where I didn't know anything. I know what I'm facing. I know what this war is about, and I'm on the front lines, but... I also have strategies and resources and support from Al-Anon and the programs. This is so wonderful. So that calmed me down. <laughs> like, okay. Can I ask, you came in, if I heard you right, you came into Al-Anon as a result of your husband's drinking. Now, you also grew up in alcoholism. Yes. But probably as a child didn't recognize that this was anything not normal, right? Right. My parents were like Rob and Laura Petrie, you know, cocktail hour at five, martinis, that yeah. kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. It was all around us. And then I went through the drug culture and all that kind of stuff myself as a teen. Yeah, I was completely surrounded by it. It wasn't until I was pregnant with my son, ironically, that my father called me and said, doctor told me I'd die 
if I don't stop drinking. So I'm going to tell you I'm an alcoholic and I'm going into treatment and into recovery. And I'm like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> what? Yeah, what? <laughs> Because the image of an alcoholic is under the bridge on the right. box. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I almost was sad. My dad was always jovial and fun to talk to when he had some wine. So He was a happy like, drunk, huh? Until not. Yeah. Until, Until not. not. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that is the thing, isn't it? Yeah. You came to Al-Anon first and then later ACA? No. It kind of happened simultaneously. I, it didn't take me long to sit there and go, you know what? Because they started talking about this, right? You're a child of an alcoholic and all that, how it influences the family. So I sat there and I thought, you know what? If I really want to do healing work, I need to go to those core issues. Mm -hmm. So I need to look at ACA stuff too, because Al-Anon gives me the support in the relationship side, but ACA really helps me heal from the generational passing down of the disease. So I've done kind of side by side. Okay. Okay. Still do. It's a lifelong process. You said about coming back in through the door, coming back into the rooms. I forget exactly what you said, but was there a period where you were like, I did this recovery thing. I'm good for now. And then your son's alcoholism started to come up and you came back. Can you clarify that a little bit for me? Sure. His dad, we got divorced. The chaos continued. He did not get clean and sober until he was 47 years old. At the time that I'm talking about, he's active in his addiction in a really, a really strong way. Mm. So I'm dealing with that. So I stayed in Al-Anon the whole time. And then my son's active addiction comes on top of that. Okay. So um, it was a recommittal starting over again at step one. Like, wait, I was <laughs> able to deal with my husband's addiction, but the kid, man, that's a totally different thing. Totally different thing because it's the opposite. The disease affects my relationships in different ways. And as a parent, we're just set up for codependency so easily. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's exactly the opposite of what you want for your kid. Yeah. You want them to thrive. You want them to be healthy. You want them to live their best life. And if something happens and they get hurt, you run, you want to fix it, you want to help them. Mm -hmm. That's your job, right, as a parent. It is your job for so long. For a while. And then it's not. And then it's not. And then you're fired. Uh, Yes. Yeah. And some kids, man, they fire you. Like, done with this? (laughs) You can't tell me. Here's an escort. It's going to escort you out of the office, okay? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had that, one of those that was like, I'm done. But it's really hard as a parent to let that go and then take it a step yeah. further. Your child, no matter what age they are, is doing self-destruction. And that's oh, the exact opposite. And the more you try to help, fix, rescue, save from death, it doesn't help. It makes it worse. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it puts you, as a parent, for me, it put me into... What do I do? What? How do I deal with this? It was really difficult, really di- the biggest challenge in my life. Yeah. So my son, to talk about how he started his yeah. addiction, again, he's got the double whammy, right, from both sides. His dad, they had lots of alcohol and addiction to other substances, really deep. My family, of course, he didn't have a chance. 
the first beer, the first joint, or both at the same time, he's off and running in an active addiction. In prepping for this talk today, this discussion, I asked him, I said, when do you think you started actually using substances? And he said about 11 or 12, which is typical. It's scary, but it's typical. So I have to ask, when would you have said he started using alcohol and other substances? I would have said around 13, 14. Okay, so not uh, too far off. I wasn't too far off. No, no. He said something interesting to me, though. He said, Mom, the addictive personality started before the actual using of substances when I was a kid. I'm like, yeah. wow, I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. And he described some of those things, why he said that. And I'm like, whoa, because he's doing a lot of reflecting and, and right. introspective work himself. Yeah. So that was an interesting comment. All through his teens, all through early adult 20s, most of his 30s until age 37 when he went into recovery. So 25 years of his life was influenced by active addiction. It's a long time. Like actively using substances in Mm -hmm. that way. But then what he said was, I actually had those traits earlier. Mm -hmm. I just didn't have the substance. Yeah, it might have been candy. For kids, sure. it's candy. You can see kids that are addicted to candy. Yeah, they, they'll do anything to get that candy. So that's what he explained to me. I'm like, wow, okay. I understand that because I don't have an addictive mind. Mm-hmm. I often go to open meetings with him, with my dad, AA and NA, to just to understand from the people who suffer from the disease what it's like for them and what they're thinking is. It really helps me to have compassion. So you started to see this behavior, what, before high school? beginning of high school? I saw it beginning of high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His dad had a near fatal accident and a lot of stuff came down and we had divorce. So we had all those, that wounds and all that, but he started great, started going down and I could yeah. see other stuff happening. Yeah. Probably after I would say in my mind, it's 10th grade in mm-hmm. high school that I started to see evidence of it. And at this point you've got, some years in Al-Anon, looking back, do you see that you were able to start really using the principles and the tools you'd learned in recovery right away? Or was there something that you might call a relapse with when you recognized what was going on with your son that you then had to pick up and almost start over? What do you think? Good question. I definitely always use the tools. I knew that's where I needed to go and meetings and all of the strategies. I knew that would help me. I think the part where, if you want to call it relapse, is like I said, his parents were set up for codependency. So the rescuing, the enabling, the trying to get him to go into rehab once we identified counseling, we tried everything. Mm -hmm. So that part I had to come to understand was not helping my son, but you're desperate. What can I do? This kid's going to kill himself. So what can I, what more can I do? (laughs) Yeah, that part, and I'm still trying to, in our new relationship, I'm trying to look at, I call it a character defect, that enabling, that thinking, rescuing and fixing. And I got a thousand plans for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and they're all good. They're all great. And the thing is, even when your child is not caught in addiction, they're still probably not following your plans. Even if yeah. you've got a, a so-called normal kid, which none of them are, but at <laughs> least in my experience, okay, they're probably not following the path that I wanted for them, the path that I had hoped for them. And so when it's addiction, it's got to be that much harder. Yeah, it's torture. Just be straight. It's just, it's torture mm-hmm. to watch it. I carried a deep sorrow for 25 years. I didn't let it overwhelm me. I learned how to live my life fully. I have a great life. And I fight for that serenity. I fight for that. Once I felt it, that, oh, this is peace. I want, I'm going to fight for this. To answer an earlier question, yeah, I'm going to keep that serenity. And I know Al-Anon will give me the tools to do that. And then I have to work those tools. And I stay real close to program, especially in the real dark, difficult times. And I stay real close to my higher power. And I state that openly. I'm going to stay real close because <laughs> I really need it right now. So yeah, yeah. It's never failed me. Never stay in me. the middle of the herd, as they say in AA. Yeah, yeah, stay in the middle of the herd. <laughs> so I wanted to share some strategies with your listeners that were really helpful for me in this long haul. Yeah. Because it, it would have killed me. We started out with this reading about hope. Was there a point at which you felt like there was no hope? Yes. I got worn down. About the middle of it, mm-hmm. I got worn down. And I'm a very positive, forward-looking person, but I couldn't take it anymore. I was so worn down, and I didn't know if my son was dead or alive. Oh. He did move out of the area, which was a blessing. And I believe he was protecting us from watching him in this self-destructive lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful. It was one less thing <laughs> that I had to face. I'm thinking about my wife when she was with me. I had these feelings and reactions to what she was like when she was with me. And then she would go to visit her family and be gone for a week. And not knowing what was happening while she was gone was just a different kind of torture. Yes. You know, is she going to be okay? I just had this visceral fear. One of her wet places was the airplane. Oh, okay. Because you got that flying bar. It's so easy. And no Um, one can get to you. And then she's going to get off the airplane and she's going to get a rental car and she's going to get on the highway. Yeah. And I can't do anything about that. At the same time, she's not here with the drinking in my face, with the things that were happening at home. So when you say it was a relief, I I go to that place. But at the same time, was there a, a fear of what might be happening outside of your view? Yes. The blessing was the protection because we didn't have to see him high on the streets in our town. Right. We didn't have to go to the hospital when he OD'd. We didn't have to go to the jail when he was arrested. He moved hours away. Mm -hmm. Thank you, son, for that. But the downside is that I didn't know where he was. I knew the vicinity 
I didn't know if he was dead or alive for years. Mm. And the only time we'd hear from him was when he called from jail and he wanted money to spend in jail. Then I know he's alive. Oh, he's alive. And they're feeding him. Okay. <laughs> the things that... I, yeah. <laughs> I even said to him, hey, this is the safest place for you. Mm-hmm. He didn't like that. But I said, hey, I, I'm not bailing you out because this is the safest place for you. I know where you are. Wow. The other part of that is I often compared this to a parent of a military service person. Now, it's not as honorable, but it is a war, right? Yeah. This is a war. Mm -hmm. So it's a battlefield and people do get killed. So I thought this is what a military parent must feel like with a child who is in a war somewhere in the desert or jungle. They're maybe missing. You don't know if they're dead. They may be dead. And the only way you're going to know is if someone comes and tells you. I often thought about that. That's probably how it feels. No closure until somebody comes to the house or calls you. And I developed an aversion to answering the phone. Mm. Not a phobia. Mm -hmm. It didn't get to that point or an obsession. But my current husband didn't understand because he doesn't have addiction. <laughs> he says, why don't you answer the phone? Like, because bad news comes through the phone, either from somebody telling me or me telling somebody really bad news, or it's the morgue, a coroner, or a detective calling me and saying, we have what we think is your son, and you're going to have to come down to the morgue and identify him. It was a trigger. I have scar tissue from this mm-hmm. journey. And mm-hmm. so it was, a, it was mm-hmm. that phone ringing would trigger this, what I call what if thinking. And then I think, okay, now I could identify him because unless he was burnt, he's got tattoos that are distinctive. So I would know if it was my son. Then I go into, okay, the, the disease gets me going with what if the imaginary stuff. Yeah. And then. It justifies itself by saying, okay, how are you going to prepare? What are you going to do? How are you going to handle this? Who's going to go with you? The planning of this whole thing. Can you prepare for that? No. No. I don't believe. I never got the call, thank God. But it could have happened. It really was very real. Yes, it could have happened. But I don't know how you prepare for that. I really don't. I don't think I could. You were talking about strategies. You were going to go there, and then I derailed you. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. I'll talk about the what-if thinking strategy, how I got out of that loop thinking. Yeah, yeah. Because that doesn't help me. That does not help me. I can't just do one what-if. I'm like an alcoholic. I can't just have one drink. I can't do one (laughs) what-if thinking. (laughs) Because I'm down the rabbit hole. (laughs) I'm down the rabbit hole. It's it's the first what-if. Yeah, okay. (laughs) The first what-if. I got to break it. So... I was at this place of hopelessness and I didn't know how to pray for my son. That's how I knew I was hopeless because Mm. it was like, how do I, what if he's dead? So I'm praying, I hope God leads him to recovery and back to the family. And then what if he's dead? Just let it go. I just, I can't, I don't know what, I don't even know what to say. A minister at a church I was attending at the time offered counseling. And so I went and I told him this story and I said, I don't sit in toxic, negative stuff very long. I want to do something about this. And he gave me a really neat suggestion that I'd like to share. Yeah. I do want to say one thing, though, that for people who 
maybe have a minor child who's acting on addiction and it's in their backyard, it's in their house, or a family member who lives in that you can't get away like I did, it's important to stay close to the program and get help. There's resources and just go to meetings to try to get through that. That's really hard to watch it when it's in your house and maybe it's a minor that you are responsible for. That's really hard. So I just wanted to mention that too. So I go to the minister and I tell him my story and he gives me this great suggestion. He said, when you think of your son, don't think of a drug addict. shooting up and toothless and all that. He said, think of him full of light, thriving, healthy, in recovery, living his best life. And he said, if you can't do that right now, he said, go home and find a picture of him when he was a little boy before the active addiction, Mm -hmm. because that's who he truly is under the disease. That's the light. That's the person who's under that disease. And I said, okay, because I do good on homework. I go home. (laughs) I found the picture and it opened that crack in the door to rebuild the hope and invite it back to my heart. Just a crack. And it was enough to get me started. And I shared it with my family, particularly my parents. My dad uh, was extremely anxious because he knows this journey He had taken my son to meetings. My son gave him birthday chips. My son knew the way out. It was just, as you know, you have to be ready. So You have to be ready. Yeah. 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 So that was comforting. And it opened the door to rebuilding this hopefulness in my heart. The other thing, and this I think is the higher power speaking to me, comforting me, guiding me through other people around me because I was asking for that. This is the, probably the darkest, hardest time in this journey. I had a coworker who was a great man. He did wonderful community work with recovery, but also with youth. Just a neat person. And I told him, same thing. We talked in my office. And he said, let me tell you a story, Amy. He said, I was raised in the church. My parents were both ministers. And they gave me a really strong foundation as a child, they built a foundation in me. He said, but I made choices as a teenager to go down a dark path and be around toxic people. And that path led me to prison. And he said, while I'm sitting in prison, I decide I don't want it this life. I want to do something different. I want to turn it around. So he looked inside. He said, I looked inside myself and there was that foundation they built for me to use in this moment. He said, I'm listening to you, and I think it sounds like you built that same foundation in your son. And I said, yes, his dad and I had that intention as parents to help him be strong, to be raised, to be a good person in the community, in the world, and have a foundation. Then he said this statement to me that changed everything. You know how you have those aha moments? Yeah. It changes your perspective. So he says to me, your son is going through this horrendous experience because his higher power is grooming him for something bigger and better. And I immediately went, there's a reason. There's a purpose in this chaos and this heartbreak. There's a reason. He's going to come through and he's going to do something good. I was that saying, what is it? I didn't cause it. I can't control it. And I can't cure it. it. Yeah. 
And I went, because I did, I did consciously try to build a foundation for him. So it wasn't like, oh, what could I have done? What happened? What did I do? That whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it just changed everything for me. And that door opened wider for the hope to start rebuilding. So those two experiences of, I believe my higher power talking to me, saying, hang in there, hang on, pain ends. There's a saying I just saw, it's called the magic in the mess. Okay. Which, you know, is there are blessings in this and there are things that you can see differently, even if you're so far down and hopeless. Those two experiences came from outside, but there were a couple things I wanted to share that I did for myself. Uh, one simple, it was just anytime there was something I saw in a store or a thrift shop that had the word hope on it, I bought it hmm. and I put it all over my house. I'm a visual person, so it's a reminder to invite it back into my heart. And mm -hmm. I would look, I still have it up. I still have all those things up in my house. As a reminder that pain will end. So I did that. That was really helpful. Then someone suggested a visualization of when you're really worrying about somebody to visualize wrapping them up in a beautiful blanket and handing them over to their higher power and letting their higher power take care of them and to stop the worry that trust that the higher power will take care of them. So yeah. those two things really helped me over all those years. 25 years, two, yeah. two thirds of his life up to the point of him finding sobriety. Yes. So you had both the blessing and the curse that you didn't n know the details of what was happening day to day. Yes. Uh, and that you didn't know the details of what was happening day to day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Two-sided coin. <laughs> it, absolutely. It's a tightrope walk. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. <laughs> I wanted to also share about how this is where the disease really affects me. Like we were talking about before that what-if thinking, mm -hmm. overthinking, stinking thinking, obsessive thinking. You can call it what you want. Yeah. But like I said, I can't, I can only, I can't do one, just one. So this is how I stopped that because I knew I had to stop that loop because it would take away my sleep. It would take away my time in my life. It's like being in the here and now that, what is it? Just for today, first things first, one yeah. day at a time, keep an open mind. Those slogans are powerful when you're in that, that loop. Yeah. So what I would do is I would bring my focus right to here and now and i'd ask myself some questions to stop the loop starting which was is it happening now you're driving a car did you get the call are you driving to the morgue no do you need to do anything about that no so mm -hmm. let it go it's not happening right now so don't waste your time and focus on something that's imaginary now, things did happen that were horrendous, yes. But what I would give myself a pep talk after I'd stop the loop, I'd say, you know what? If something happens, you're smart, you're a problem solver, you're good at that, and you know where to go to get help if you can't solve it yourself. 
So you have everything you need, just like my son. You have everything you need. If something comes your way, you'll be able to handle it. Mm-hmm. And that would stop the oh, what if and, and the justification. I got to prepare. <laughs> Get my toolkit out. What am I going to do? And that's the rabbit hole, right? Yeah. How to prepare. Yeah. Running on that, that hamster wheel in the head is not preparation. No. <laughs> that's just stealing your life away. And I didn't want to do that. I worked too hard in my own recovery to give that power over to that. And I still do that because I'll get in the what ifs and the worry. And 90, what, 95% of the time, there's nothing. It's imaginary. It never happens. Your son, you say, did find his own way. I know when I'm telling my story, I say, and there was a day that my wife woke up and she said, I don't want to drink today and I don't want to drink tomorrow. And that I am so grateful that she did it for herself and not for me and not for her kids and not for her job, that she did it for herself. Is that how you see your son finding his way? Oh, yeah, it had to be. His story is horrendous. How it happened was... Five years ago, at this time, which is ironic, we're having this discussion, Mm. is all this big change happened exactly at this time, Mm. five years ago. And at the time, both my parents were alive, and they they were medically fragile. They were elders, and my dad had some heart episode and ended up in the ER. And then my mother caught H1N1 flu, which was deadly, that year as we went to visit him in the ER. So... My, my dad's in a life-threatening situation. My mom is now quarantined for a week in the hospital, life-threatening. I could lose my parents at the same time. Mm. I don't know where my son is. He hasn't been in our life for a while. And I get a call in the middle of this from his dad saying that he was informed by a friend of our son that he's in critical condition in the ICU in the hospital down where he lived. We don't know anything more than that. And I went, oh, mm. my God, the three, three sacred people in my life could potentially die at the same time. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I see this as the higher power filling my codependent hands yeah. with my parents. So I could not go down and see what was going on with my son. Not that I didn't want to, but yeah. Yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't. So here's the magic and the mess. I asked his dad, I said, hey, I can't. My hands are full. I can't. My parents could die. So you're going to have to take this over. If he wants some help, we've been through everything. So it was up to him. If he wants some help, you're the only one that can do it. I can't do it. I'll support you, but I'm limited. Now, his dad at that point had 15 years sobriety, Hmm. was active in NA and fellowship and leadership in there. And he also worked in the field. So he had a lot of resources and connections. He's the perfect person. If our son wanted help, he's the perfect person. Now, his deep sorrow, and I'm speaking for him, but I think he'd agree. His deep sorrow is that he worked with young men like my son. Yeah. Help, helping them find recovery, and he couldn't help his own son. That's a deep sorrow. Yeah. So here's his chance. Here is his chance. 
And so he said, I'll take it. And I said, okay, okay. He did it. He did a phenomenal job. So here's the higher power part. I asked my son, how many days were you in the hospital down there by himself? Yeah. 28, 28 days by himself in the hospital and in a lot of pain and multiple withdrawals from multiple addictions Mm. on top of the medical issue that took him there. I pity the doctor. <laughs> yeah. Work with him. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody could go down. I can't remember the reasons why. No, I knew mine, but I didn't know. Anyway, he had to lay there with his higher power and his life in his hands and go, do I die? Do you take me? Or do I embrace life and fight for my life? His life was so rough that it had to be that. To answer your question, it had to be that. That was his bottom. When we got a chance to talk to him, he said, I want to do this. I'm ready now. And I need help. Yeah. So we said, okay. At that point, when he asks for it, then yeah, you're ready to step up. Yeah. Somehow his dad got him up here where we are. And he arrived with the clothes on his back and in very fragile condition still withdrawing from the drugs and went right into rehab. And here's the interesting part. There were like 20, 20 clients in his cohort that go through with him. Yeah. And he had the worst story and everybody said, Oh, he's not going to make it. He was the only one. Mm. He was the only one that didn't relapse mm. out of that group, which was interesting to me. Maybe because his story was so harsh. Was ready. That, sick and tired of being sick and tired, yeah. isn't that the... That thing? is the phrase. That's one of the phrases, yeah. Yeah, I was there myself yeah. as a mother. It, yeah. I had to wait for him to be there too. Now, sure. I will say this, that one other component to the success of his recovery, besides his incredible commitment, I want to give him full credit for the work mm-hmm. and commitment, was that his dad got him into a sober living arrangement, which bought him some time to get his feet underneath him before he went back out in the world. He was surrounded by recovery. They had a job component so he could make money and he could get recent job experience on his resume. And I really believe that was a big factor in really giving him a solid chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it led to a career for him. And he's last five years have been a amazing effort i'm just so proud of him turning his life around paying off stuff getting licenses buying a house reconnecting with family and very strong in the program very strong it sounds like you lost any connection with him while he was out there and now he's back he's in recovery How do you, I don't think rebuild necessarily is the word I want, reconstruct a relationship with that decades of unconnection in the middle of it and with a new person that your son is now? Yeah, he's a new person. He's the person underneath the disease. Yeah. We sat down. His first desire was to rebuild and reconnect with the family. Mm-hmm. when he came out of rehab. And I sat down, we had a heart-to-heart talk about it, and I said, 
first, you need to know that you are unconditionally loved. Just know that. But there's no trust from your lifestyle and your behavior. There is no trust with any of us right now. So you have to decide, do you want to rebuild that trust first? And are they willing to, you have to go and talk to each person and see if they're willing and ask them a question. What do you need from me to start building that trust again? And I said, maybe not, you don't know if they're going to do it or not. So be prepared. But I said, you could practice on dad and I, if you want to, (laughs) (laughs) being the mom. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Practice on us. So we might be work. safe for you to do that with, depending. Yeah, we were. We were. I know that from your side, you were, whether from his side, he felt that way. That's a, an interesting question for me. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question I should ask him about because, yeah, how did you feel when I said that? So I gave him something. It was big for me, but I didn't load him up with a list. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here, oh, yeah. do all this and then maybe. I said, you know what? The most important thing for me, especially this is an addict's behavior, is honor your word. Have an honorable word. Stand behind your word. So if you call me, if you say you're going to call me, follow it up. If you can't because you're in a meeting or you're working, then text me and say, Mom, I can't call you at five. I'm in a meeting, which he does. And I said, just don't ghost me. <laughs> don't make promises that you're, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And then it never happens. So that was one of the examples of what I needed from him. I don't know what his dad said or other people said. That's actually a great, I guess I'll use the word strategy here since we've used it before, of setting concrete goals. Yeah. And really, it's also a boundary. Yes. Good point. Yes. A boundary for me. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> that i have to protect my myself as well because i'm i'm trying to build the trust with him although i will say that i'm getting ahead of myself but although i will say this is a character defect on my side i realized not just recently i'm maybe not doing my part of building the trust he went beyond i was caring for my parents at the end he stepped up and helped me when they died seven months apart So he let me lean on him, and then he helped me when I had to handle their affairs. And I'm so grateful that he was present and in recovery when I needed him the most. And he stepped up, he stepped up, and really, I could lean on him. And the other bonus of that was my parents got to see him in recovery, which is a beautiful gift. But That, That is a gift. Oh, it was huge. It was huge. In both directions, really. Yeah, because he knew the pain. It was beautiful. And he went beyond my list. (laughs) And really just so grateful to him. So happy that he was there when I, and I leaned on him. I needed to lean on him. I got off. What was it that you asked me? It's about putting, I'm not going to say putting your relationship back together. I think it's more creating a new relationship. Yes. So you've been talking about that, really. You have been. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's new. It's new. And I want it to be new. He's letting me see him grow like I wanted to see him grow back when he was a teenager and in his 20s. He's letting me see him grow. And it's a beautiful gift to a parent. That's all I ever wanted was to see him grow and thrive. And yeah, he's giving me 
that and we're rebuilding. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. My part is my worrying that what if stuff I told you about earlier. Yeah. Oh, are you okay? Was he going to have some huge life challenge and he's going to relapse? Oh my God. And how do I prepare for that? A whole new set of what ifs. Whole new set. Yeah. So I need to make amends to him about that because it puts him in a spot where he does reassure me. Are you okay? Did you make it home? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm not going to give up this life. And I thought, you know what? That's not right. That's not, I'm not trusting that he has everything. Yeah. And one of my sponsees called me out and said, you know what? You're not trusting that his higher power is taking care of him. I said, yeah, bingo. There you go. Mm. (laughs) Character defect. So I'm, that's what I'm currently working with. I've heard this in the rooms where people who have their qualifier go into recovery. I don't know if you've heard this, where, oh, joy, they're alive. We're so happy. It's all over. It's done. We don't have to come to these meetings anymore. And we're, uh, no, it just, it's great. But at the same time, the scar tissue is there and the triggers are there and the trust you have to, I have to build the trust on my side. And I just realized that. And I thought, no, I need to make amends and then I need to change it change that and show him I, I really believe in him and I know he has everything. He's in his 40s. He can he can do it. He's got everything. He's got a strong program, sponsors, everything. A loving family. You can see that I'm laughing here. I'm just thinking about you said he's in his 40s and I think about my children who are in their early 30s and the difference between the way I feel about their adultness is that a word yes and the way i felt about my own (laughs) yeah when i was in my mid-30s i felt like totally an adult i was married i owned a house i had a career and when i look at my kids i'm still like they're still figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And I know it's just perspective. I'm positive that I was equally competent or incompetent as they are now when I was their age, but the perspective is so different. And so when you say, yeah. he's in his mid 40s, he's in his 40s, <laughs> like, I just connected yeah. with that so viscerally. <laughs> His dad and my dad didn't get clean and sober until 47. Yeah, so he's ahead of them. (laughs) He's ahead of them. He's 10 years. I'm clapping. Hey, you you got, they wasted 10 more years and they got to the point where they were dying. You know, what, 37 and 47. There's got to be some numerology explanation for that one, but. Sure. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. (laughs) My one wish is that there's change your thoughts, change your life, right? You change the way you see things. And this breaking of that choke chain in the family has been something I've wanted to do. My dad started it and we're working on it. And the one thing I asked my higher power was the one thing I want in my life before it ends is I want to see my family healing. We've been through so much pain and so much challenge I want to see, I want to be able to see the good stuff, the healing, and then the healing passed on to the next generation, not the disease. They still can get it. I'm not naive about that. But knowledge, the awareness. I think there's the 
there's the physical disease, yeah. which there's this genetic component to it, which I firmly believe based on evidence in my family. Yeah. Um, but there's the there's also the spiritual malady. And I think both of those are transmitted from one generation to the next. Yes. There's not much we can do about the physical aspect of it. Genetics is what it is. Our kids have eyes the same color as us, or they don't hair the same color. They're the same height, or they're not. We look at our children, and we see our grandparents in them. I know that's happened with me. Oh, yeah. But we can change what we pass on spiritually. And that's hope. Yeah, it is. For a better path for the people, you know, who might be coming along next. In my I've case, had... there's no grandkids. Who knows? <laughs> there's still hope. Well, I have eight grandkids. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm, yeah. I'm watching this unfold. And But you know what? My higher powers allowed me has given me the has answered my wish, my prayer. Mm-hmm. And my dad had 40 years. My former husband, my son's dad, has 20 mm-hmm. this year. My son has five. I've got 32. We talk openly and we talk about recovery. Yeah. We support each other in recovery. Not every family has that. No. It's a beautiful thing. And the funny thing is we can go to family holiday events, okay, which a lot of people with this disease in their family go, oh, my God. <laughs> Hang on. Yeah. field's coming. And we can go. Nobody's drinking. Yeah. We can sit and watch my grandson run around in his Spider-Man costume and be in the moment and remember it and enjoy it. Yeah. And be. And I think everybody appreciates the family being that way now. No matter what the occasion, it's not a dread. Oh, my God, who's going to be drunk? Who's going to be make an ass of themselves and destroy it and ruin it? And what drugs are they on? And what drink are they doing? We don't have that. And I can't tell you how beautiful and wonderful. I'm so happy to be able to experience that in my life. I really am. It's huge. You speak about breaking the chain, breaking the chain of addiction. But what I am hearing is that you're forging a new chain of recovery. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. That's a great way. I like that a lot. Yeah, forging a new chain. Yeah. Yeah, that binds us in a different, you know, family is connected, and it binds us in a positive, healthy way. Yeah. And you know what? Now's the time to do the work. Your wonderful show, the beautiful work you're doing, means that the culture gives us permission now. We're the people now that do, can do this work because the culture gives us permission. Would we have this show, this podcast, how, how many years ago? What, 10 years ago you started this? Started it 10 years ago, and podcasts didn't exist 10 years before that. No, no. <laughs> and your listeners, when I listen to your episodes, and I love all of them, I learned something from each one. Your listeners say... It's just so wonderful to be driving or I can't get somewhere. I can't get to anybody. I need it right now. How wonderful is that, that our culture has evolved in this arena so that we can talk openly and we have the vocabulary words to use for that discussion Mm -hmm. and clarity. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me 
this is the time. Uh, we've got the support, the help, the resources if we want it. So we're the people that can break these chains from our ancestral. That's just a little spiritual thing that I am passionate about to do this work. I do it for myself and my family. I do it first, but I do a lot of work with my sponsees on the ACA workbook, core issue stuff. And what did you inherit? And how do you create a new chain? I'm going to use that now. I like that. How do you create a new chain that's healthy? Yeah, it's great. You gave me a little, not even a, well, maybe it's a sentence. There's magic in the mess. Yes, there's magic in the mess. I love it. I just heard this and I thought, that's great because that's true, especially when I was doing, looking at this stuff we're talking about. But, oh, there's a lot of blessings if you have your eyes open. And a lot, of course, a lot of times it's hindsight. Oh, now I can see higher power timing. Now I can see I heard this at this point where I needed to hear this. So I do a lot of hindsight looking and learning that way. Because when you're in it, you're dealing with it, right? You're just not trying to survive it. <laughs> For sure. You brought a closing reading as well. Yeah. So this is really cool because it's from the Elanon book, Hope for Today. And I think it summarizes all the things that we were talking about beautifully. And it's page 366, December 31st. It's the, it's the last page of the book. So it's summarizing the book as well. And it talks about hope. It said, at my first Al-Anon meeting, I felt like a parched person drinking cold, refreshing water. With gratitude, I took in the words of the suggested welcome and closing. Every time I went to a meeting, I'd close my eyes and let those precious words refresh me. Years later, I realized I was listening to Al-Anon's words of hope. Hope I could claim as my own if I was willing to work the steps. When I felt boxed in by despair, you assured me that no situation is really hopeless and I could find contentment and even happiness despite my qualifiers drinking. When I felt worn out from replaying awful scenarios in my mind, there's the what if, you told me I could put my problems in their true perspective and they would lose their power to dominate. When I felt alone, you reminded me I wasn't. You pointed out my choices when all I knew were rules and appearances. I didn't have to agree to belong. I could take what I liked and leave the rest. You even claimed that you already loved me in a special way, even though I hated myself, and that I would learn to love you too. You offered me sponsorship, hugs, and phone numbers, even when I hadn't earned them. I didn't know what a loving interchange was, and you took the time to show me. Thanks, Al-Anon, for the persistent repetition of these hope-filled words and actions. Gradually, they came true for me. Now, when I share them with others, I have the joy of seeing them come alive again. And then the thought for the day. When I count my blessings, I remember to count Al-Anon's gift of hope. If you try to keep an open mind, you will find help. You will come to realize there is no situation too difficult to be bettered and no unhappiness too great to be lessened. I asked you to pick some music. What's the first one you have for us? So the first one shows my age. <laughs> it's called but Bridge Over Troubled Water. For those that are young, you can Google that. It's Simon and Garfunkel. I thought this one says a lot about the relationship between a parent and a child. 
their feelings about it. When you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I'll dry them all. I'm on your side. Oh, when times get rough and friends just can't be found. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. When you're down and out and when you're on the street, when evening falls so hard, I will comfort you. I'll take your part. Oh, when darkness comes and pain is all around. Now that could be, that could be enabling <laughs> and heavy codependence rescuing, but I chose not to see it that way. I think it just says from the heart how a parent feels about their child and the pain that they're going through with this disease. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? And since you've been talking so much, I'll, I'll give it a try here. What's been going okay. on in my life? couple things that happened this weekend come to my mind. One of the gifts that I discovered in recovery that I think recovery gave me the space in my life and in my spirit to discover was a joy in working with young people and teenagers in particular. My kids became teenagers right near the beginning of my time in Al-Anon. And I remember they turned 13 and my thought was, oh my God, I have teenagers now. And a year later, when they turned 14, my thought was, my God, I have teenagers. Children of that age bring a certain kind of an energy, an independence, a seeking, I think, that gives me joy being with them. Mm -hmm. So I worked with the high school youth in my church community for a number of years. And then I worked with high school age youth in a multi-state region to help plan weekend cons, we called them. I don't know if that stands for conference or convention or whatever, but it, we called them cons. And that was overall, I think, almost 10 years. And then I had to step back. I was starting to tire to burn out and give somebody else the opportunity, right? I got pulled back in this year into the high school group at my church. Because of COVID, there had been basically no cons for a couple of years. And the thing is that we had built up this community in the region which was Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky, and a little bitty slice of Ohio, where these weekend cons from Friday night to Sunday morning were planned and executed by the teens, with the adults there just as backup and support and to deal with the legalities. Two and a half years in the life of a high school student is forever. And we are in danger of losing 
the continuity of experience that enabled us to be able to do that, to be able to provide that gift of three to four weekends with 50 to 100 youth together doing workshops and playing and worshiping, we're in danger of losing that, the memory, the experience that that let us do that. And so this weekend, some of the people who'd been carrying <laughs> carrying the torch through the darkness, if you will, called a small one. It was Friday night to Saturday afternoon to try to start to rekindle the flame that we had. I went with another adult and three youth from our group. We drove four hours to in, into Indiana to spend this, not quite 24 hours, with, with there was 20 people there. We started to rebuild this community. One of the youth that came is a freshman. When we were there, I would see her occasionally and look like she was just not quite involved sitting back. And I thought, okay, I wonder how, wonder how this is going for her. And then Sunday morning, we met with the youth group again, and she was so enthusiastic about what had happened. And she said, if there's another one, I will definitely be going. And I thought that is why we do this thing. And this relates for me to recovery because I could not have done this thing without the new life that I found through Al-Anon, the ability to give without taking, give without controlling, and also to stop focusing on the other stuff. I'm trying not to swear. (laughs) <laughs> that had been happening in my life. And it, that is such, it was just such a gift of recovery that is not something I ever expected. Sunday morning, as we gathered with, with the teens, we asked each of them to express if they wanted a joy and a sorrow in their life. Some people didn't have anything to say. Some people had something light. One girl expressed a fear that a friend of hers in high school had disappeared, that she had last been seen on Friday and they didn't know where she was. And this morning I got the news that she had been found and she was dead. We don't know why. I immediately reached out to my other advisors in the youth group and to person at the church who is in charge of the children and youth programming and I said, this happened, and this this person in our class was a friend of this young woman, and mm-hmm. what can we do? We need to keep her and everybody else, some of whom probably also knew this girl, in our hearts, in our prayers. And But how can we reach out? How can we provide pastoral care? And I won't be there next Sunday because I'm going to be in Colorado at a recovery conference, but I thought I just needed to start that. I needed to do what I could when recognizing that that's all I can do. I know that I don't inject myself into other people's lives. That's something that I've learned, but that to try to make it clear that I am available as a support. And again, that's something that 
that I've learned here. I, I remember I was in a meeting some years ago. I don't remember what the topic of the meeting was, but a number of people were sharing difficulties they'd been having. And when it came around to me, I said something like, I know I need to be in this program because I want to fix things for every single one of you. (laughs) (laughs) And this program tells me that's not my job. And thank goodness. (laughs) Staying in your own hula hoop on your own side of the street. (laughs) Yeah. So that's my uh, experience of recovery over the weekend. How about yourself? Well, recovery is always going on because I, I sponsor people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, let me say this, it, 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 when I'm sponsoring people, not just doing the ACA work, I'm doing the work along with them. They do coal and we go over stuff of what's going on. And it just helps me stay in, connected to this program in a really deep way. Sponsorship helps me stay in the recovery, connected to the recovery. And I get so much out of that because, like I said, I'm doing the work along with them. Their insights, they help me see things. If we're working on a certain step, I'm working it too. So I'm always doing that kind of work as we go along. And of course, again, the evolving relationship with my son. And I paid something forward. I'll tell you this one. I paid something forward. I I have a, like a vacation home and I gave it as a gift to someone honeymooners. And this was done for me on my first marriage. Same thing. And it was wonderful. This vacation home has always been a healing spot. Not that honeymooners need to be healed, but... (laughs) One hopes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully not. It was a good feeling of no return. It was a gift, like you said. There's no, you owe me, or let's put it on the list. Or It was just... I don't know if you want to call it paying a forward. I don't even want to say that because that means list. I'm checking it off. I get points, extra Mm -hmm. credit points. That's not why I did it. The program reminds me to just give freely and without expecting return. I think that was most recent. Mm -hmm. And it was not only a good feeling, but I felt like, okay, I'm I'm not paying it for it. I don't even want to say that. I don't like that term, but it's given, love is given freely, unconditionally which we always need practice. I know I need, I should say we need, I, I need practice. <laughs> Removing the condition. I'm looking forward. I'm actually have a wealth of podcast participation at the moment, but I'm always looking forward. What might we be talking about next? And what occurs to me right now is that I'm going to this conference this coming weekend. Oh my God. I'm like getting on a plane Friday morning. And the title of the conference is Willingness is the Key in 2023. Nice little, like, rhyme there. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to come back from the conference with a lot of thoughts about willingness and how I have experienced it, how I have maybe resisted it in my recovery. And so I'm reaching out to say, how have you experienced willingness or maybe the lack of it in your recovery? Are there times when you just had to be willing to be willing or could you even go that far? So we welcome your thoughts. Please join our conversation. 
you can leave a voicemail or send us an email with your share, with your feedback, with your questions. And Amy, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of the effects of alcoholism on the relationship between mother and son, or parent and child, or any of our upcoming topics, including willingness. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Our website is therecovery.show. We have all the information there, which mostly is the notes for each episode, of which there are now 395, 10 years worth, links to the readings that we had today, videos for the music that Amy chose for us, and there's also there some links to other recovery podcasts and websites. So check it out at therecovery.show. If you want to recommend the podcast to a friend, send them to therecovery.show where they can play episodes, and there's also a way to follow or subscribe uh, to the podcast so it will show up on your phone or other device every time we have a new episode. Amy, what's your second song? So my second song is from Tim McGraw, probably because I'm watching him on 1883. I thought I would check out his music. He does write some really heartfelt music. This one's called Live Like You Were Dying. Now, this is referring to his dad, who he reconnected with later on in life, before he passes. But that's not my focus for presenting it. It really talks about how to live differently and embrace your life. So this is more about my son, when I told you about him being in the hospital, saying, here's the choice, die or embrace life and fight for it. This is what he chose. So I thought this kind of said it all. He said, I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me. When a moment came that stopped me on a dime, I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays and talking about the options and talking about sweet time. I asked him when it sank in that this might really be the real end. How's it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what do you do? And he said, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu, and I loved deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday, I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. I think it says a lot about the last five years my son has embraced life this way. Thank God. Yes. I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful.
As you might guess, I got several responses to the episode on people of color in recovery, number 394, with Mary. She wrote to me and said, I got contacted by someone who heard the episode and found my meeting. She plans to come tonight, so thank you. Darlene wrote, Hello, Spencer. I've been listening to your podcast for over two years now and have always appreciated its message and your service. Listening to episode 394 regarding people of color in recovery had me in tears. I felt overwhelmed and overjoyed that someone was sharing my feelings of the lack of inclusion. I am Mexican-American and am fortunate that my home meetings were in San Diego. When I first found myself in these rooms, I was surrounded by older white women who were also loving and kind, but I felt a bit uncomfortable not being able to identify. Still, the healing power of Al-Anon kept me coming back. I will be celebrating four years in the program in a few months. During COVID, I was able to try so many other meetings online, even attending a meeting every day for a few months. This is where my recovery really took off. My first sponsor, who I didn't identify with, was a wonderful woman, but I lacked any identity culturally. I heard in the rooms that we focus on the program and leave outside issues at the door, so I thought I could pick anyone to help me start my step work. This is not true for me. When I shared my story, I felt a disconnection when talking about my culture and how, in a Mexican household, the men were elevated and the women were treated as if in servitude to them. This was never said in this way. Rather, we always serve the men dinner first, never force them to help with the housework, and when men drink, it's readily accepted even in a children's game such as Loteria. Which, I gotta say, I don't know that game, so I have to look it up. After everything shut down in my city, I was encouraged to find a new sponsor and bravely asked another member through the strength of my higher power. She is also Mexican-American, and within the first hour of meeting with her, I felt safe and connected. I shared and cried, and I knew I found the missing piece of my recovery journey. I could say things that only another person of color or Latina would understand, and there were no raised eyebrows or confused looks. Since then, I have sought out groups of people of diversity and haven't looked back. While alcoholism is a disease that affects us all, there is just something about identifying with a group on a more intimate level where I know I'm not the only one. How helpful would it have been to find a group online whose names reflected me a bit more than just women or LGBTQ+, which seem like the only acceptable descriptive additions? I will always love this program and will keep coming back, but today I'm so grateful to have heard this topic. Thank you. Thank you, Darlene, for writing. Tessa writes, I was very glad to hear someone from Elanon address this issue honestly. We need to do something about our lack of diversity if we want Elanon to survive. We have to be willing to try different approaches than what we've been doing for the past 72 years, since when it comes to diversity and inclusion, the old approaches have not worked. I have seen some Elanon members, including leaders, try to avoid or silence such discussions for fear of controversy or because that's not how we've always done things. Perhaps it isn't intended, but such attitudes can make Elanon look like we are more comfortable staying as we are, mostly old, white, and female, rather than truly welcoming other kinds of people into our fellowship. I understand some young people's groups have gotten similar pushback. Decades ago, Elanon old-timers were likewise anxious about accepting groups of adult children or LGBTQ+. Once again, we need to learn to overcome our fears and have the courage to change. And there's a little smiley face. Because, as the saying goes, doing the same thing and expecting different results is crazy. Thanks for the podcast and this episode in particular. Best, Tessa. Tessa, thank you for writing. 
Sarah wrote briefly, Thanks for all you do, Spencer. Sarah T. from Massachusetts. Laurel wrote, Very divisive episode. Lois and Bill are turning over in their graves. We are all one in the program. Thanks, Laurel, for your feedback. Patrick writes, Thank you for focusing on this topic. While there are probably a myriad of reasons there are few members of color in recovery meetings, we all can do what we can to make all who come to our meetings feel welcomed and accepted. You mentioned about listening to a talk by a mother and son using the steps, traditions, and concepts in their interpersonal relationships. Do you have a link to that talk? And yes, Patrick, I do have a link to that talk, and I will put that link in the show notes. Actually, I also put that link in response to Patrick in the comments section on episode 394, so you can find it at therecovery.show slash 394 as well. Julie left us a voicemail about this episode. Hi, Spencer. This is Julie. I listened to the episode titled People of Color in Recovery, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. And I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to you for having Mary on. And thank you, Mary. I totally applaud your courage. Thank you for having the courage to talk about this very uncomfortable topic on such a wide platform as this podcast. Racism seems to be a taboo subject in Al-Anon meetings, along with the topics of sex and one's own drinking. And I identify as a person of color, and I feel so heard and seen after listening to this episode. And I feel like this issue was long overdue in talked about in Al-Anon, and I haven't had the courage to bring it up. So again, I still appreciate Mary for talking about this. I have witnessed in the meetings that I've attended, and I've been around a few 24 hours, so I've attended many different kinds of meetings. And a couple of times I've witnessed where a member of color brings up their own experience as a person of color of being treated unfairly due to their skin color. And I have witnessed white members using the cloak of traditional to hush up these members wanting to talk about their experiences. And what I would like to remind all of us gently is of Tradition 12, principles above personalities, and also the saying, take what you like and leave the rest. I am a person of color. I am also a person in recovery. I cannot completely, I cannot compartmentalize those two experiences because me experiencing life, period, as a human being includes not just both of those experiences, but my experience as a woman and all of my life experiences. So I just would like a safe place. I want my Al-Anon meetings to be a safe place to talk about. I mean, I feel safe in talking about all other areas of my life, except for this. So yes, my wish is that someday I would show up at an Alana meeting. And if something was bothering me, if some experience that I had as a person of color in this culture, in this society was bothering me, that 
I would feel comfortable enough to talk about it. And I also really appreciate Mary saying toward the end of the episode, saying that she does not speak for all Koreans, that she only speaks for herself. I appreciate that comment because I also am Korean and I only speak for myself and my experiences as Korean and again, all my other life experiences. And I've certainly been boxed in with the rest of the Koreans on earth. So again, thank you. Bye. Thank you, Julie, for sharing that. Bonnie says a thank you to both of you and a shout out to Mary for this enlightening and very important piece of information on diversity and discrepancy. At the beginning of the pandemic, when George Floyd was brutally publicly murdered, and my son is a man of color, I identify as a woman of color because of my religion. I was asked not to wear a hat on Zoom that said, Make Racism Wrong Again by my home women's group, All White. As you can tell, that sat very wrong with me because it was not an outside issue for me. There have been a couple of times over the past 10 years with this white women's group where I have felt silenced and not welcomed including when we had gun violence in our community, 12 children slash people killed in 2018. But it was an outside issue to talk about guns, which I figured out are sacred to white people. All that to say, I truly appreciate the conversation, the readings, the tradition, the concept, and the badass approach to making it safe for all people. Thanks for writing, Bonnie. Veronica says, Hello. After hearing Mary's episode on diversity, I was moved to reach out to you. I did a search on your site if there's an episode on young people in Al-Anon, and I didn't see an episode and nothing came up. I'd be happy to be considered as a guest. Thank you for that, Veronica. I came into the rooms at 26 in January 2005, and I'm 44 now. Though at the time there wasn't much young people, I lucked out. My group didn't care about my age. They were more concerned if I was working the steps and if I found a sponsor. Then I moved to San Francisco, where the Recovery Fellowship was diverse and had a youthful vibe. It has a huge LGBT plus of recovery community, and the recovery events were a party. It wasn't until I went to my first YPAA, Young People of AA event, in San Jose, California in 2014, that I experienced for the first time meeting young adults in my peer group getting recovery. There had to be about a thousand attendees. The only reason I even went to that event was that I was Area Diversity Coordinator for Northern California and the San Jose Young Adults in Recovery was hosting an Al-Anon outreach table, and I came to support them. The service that YPAA was doing, I wanted that for me and Al-Anon. There were plenty of young people along with myself at the time being vocal that our perspective matters as young people, and we need young people meetings. Since then, I have been active in young people outreach and service. I've started young people meetings led service events and committees that offered young people-focused programming, attended the Southern California YHA conference from 2019 to 2021 during their three-year trail. As much recovery as I got to these activities, I faced hostility and resistance from the Al-Anon links of service. We were facing the same weaponized behavior the adult children were facing when they were talking about growing up in an alcoholic home. During that time, it took 22 years for the Al-Anon Fellowship to accept that the adult-child perspective is part of the Al-Anon experience, which, when studying World Conference summaries from 1978 to 2019, it was a fierce battle the adult children faced. Change didn't happen till the adult children started adult children focus meetings, became GRs, DRs, and delegates, that finally literature was being created. That's how we got from survival to recovery. The 12-step fellowship of ACA formed because Alateens were having a difficult time transitioning 
from Alateen to Alanon and couldn't connect to the older fellowship that made Alanon. These young adults wanted to talk about growing up in an alcoholic home. The cognitive dissonance was massive because that is what Alateen was all about, growing up in an alcoholic home. And yet you have the fellowship's people in the links of service telling these young people that their abuse is an outside issue. Fast forward, the same behavior is happening now. Young people deserve the chance of recovery, and based on the current behavior of the WSO, what we don't need is the gaslighting, dismissiveness, weaponizing of Al-Anon legacies of trusted servants by the links of service and the WSO. This just creates more barriers, bureaucracy, red tape for young people to access their recovery. I think young people as a concept may just trigger a lot of those in fellowship because we remind you of your unprocessed trauma and instead of using the tools and actually doing your inventory, we're getting the triggered reaction. It's a topic within Al-Anon that continues to be an ongoing issue, and it doesn't need to be. Veronica P. in Portland, Oregon. Thank you for sharing that experience, Veronica. There's a lot in there that I certainly have not been aware of, so thanks. Also got some feedback about other episodes. Kathy Writes, Spencer, thanks as always to you and your crew for keeping this valuable tool alive and fresh. Apropos of no particular show, I recently came upon the work of M.C. McDonald through another podcast and her soon-to-be-published book, Unbroken. She is a trauma researcher, and the book talks about all aspects of trauma and finding ways to heal from it. She talks a bit about triggers, the bad rap they have been given, and how to think about them. She basically said that we can heal from them, but it's an inside job. You cannot expect others to change their behavior so you can avoid discomfort. So many times in Al-Anon meetings, I have heard people justifying their behavior with something like, so-and-so triggered me. As I have been in the program for a rather long time, longer than you, Spencer, I have come to believe that we own our triggers, and only we can find ways to make changes so that we face our trauma, interrupt those powerful reactions, and learn to live in the world as it is. I still have work to do on this, but through my fourth step, I've come a long way toward healing and finding new ways to respond to this kind of stimulus. I've learned to postpone a reaction so I have some time to process it more and find a reasonable way to approach it with the other person. This is my two cents. Kathy A. Well, I'll tell you what, Kathy, that's a pretty hefty two cents. Thank you. Barbara left us a voicemail with a story of recovery. Hi, Spencer. This is Barbara calling in from California. I'm just finishing working to episode 232. I'm a sober parent and I'm about three and a half years into Al-Anon and surely I found this particular episode before I'm a regular listener to your show. I think this is a wonderful topic as I hear in many of the meetings that I go to men and women struggling with how to handle their kids with an unreliable parent and then figuring out how honest to be with them about what's really happening in their home, both because we don't want to admit it to ourselves, we don't want the kids to be scared, and then also a desire not to perpetuate the disease by denying or lying. So it's really a conundrum. My situation is slightly different. I'm a step-parent. My husband is a qualifier. I've known these kids since they were three and six, and around the time when they were eight and 11, things were really bad with my husband's drinking, and at that time, he was also using a lot of Xanax. So he had been drinking too much around the kids at that point already. It was something I was beginning to discuss with him, again, pre-Alanon, thinking that might have an impact. But this brought things to a different level. His face would get very contorted. He would fall asleep on the sofa in the middle of 7 o'clock at night. And I really struggled with what to do because they don't come to our house to visit me. I have a good 
relationship with them. But if their dad is not functioning, they should be with their mom. And I say that even though it pained me a lot of the time. And then also, in addition, whose job was it to call that out? Was it my job to call their mom and kind of betray my husband? Was it my job to perpetuate a situation in which I didn't think they should be exposed? Fortunately or unfortunately, things came to a head in such a way that I didn't have to make that decision. The kids started to share some of what was going on with their mother, and she and I actually got on a phone call about it, and that was another conundrum for me about how much how much is airing your household's dirty laundry with I'm sure many listeners understand it's a contentious relationship and many divorces and my husband and his ex-wife was no different so I knew he didn't want too much of his laundry aired with her um a couple of things that really helped me figure out what to do was somebody told me that by the time a child is eight they know something's wrong they can't articulate it they don't have a name for it but they know their house isn't like other houses and they may already be doing things like not having friends over and going more to their friends' houses and things like that. And my older stepdaughter was definitely coming home and in time to make sure if I wasn't here that somebody was here to protect her younger brother. But it was a gift to me to think that at eight years they already knew because I stopped worrying about being the preventer of that knowledge. That was a gift to me. The second piece of advice was always to be age appropriately honest. And I think we've talked about it on the show before, but just saying that dad is sick is honest. It is an honest way to describe what's happening. He's not thinking well, being as appropriately honest as you can. I also became really clear at a certain point that I was sacrificing my relationship with the kids that I had put a lot of work into, aka by lying to them, to protect his. And he wasn't putting any work into that relationship. And it became very clear to me that I couldn't hide anymore from them and that I was protecting him over my own relationship. So I did have some conversations at a certain point, really, when the kids, the kids kind of pinned me to a wall about it, almost physically in the house one night when he passed out. But I shared that I thought that their dad wasn't very good around alcohol and that he was drinking too much right now. And that was what was happening. And my eight-year-old stepson said, let's go downstairs and dump out all the beer because we have a fridge downstairs. And I said, I'm happy to do that with you guys, but where, you know, can dad get more beer? And they thought for a minute and they said, the supermarket. And I said, yeah, the supermarket. And they said, well, let's take his ID then. And then they get a beer at the supermarket. And for better or worse, he's a silver fox. So I don't think he has that issue buying beer at the supermarket. But that was a great opportunity where I could see that they had the same knee-jerk reactions that we do of trying to control the situation. And I, I was glad that I shared with them what I did. Today, things are better. He's still actively drinking. We don't have them as much. They don't ask me as much. It's still really hard, but it's a lot better than it was. Thanks for your show. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Barbara, for sharing your story with us today. Sarah writes, hello. I just wanted to pass along our song we wrote for someone who is suffering with an addicted spouse. So many feelings are felt when you love somebody who is so dependent on alcohol that they can't see how they're treating you. And anger is the leading emotion both me and another have felt. So I thought maybe this song could help others feel like that unpleasant feeling is 100% normal, and it isn't their fault for feeling that way. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah, for sending that. I'm also curious to listen to whatever else you have created. Looks from the YouTube that there's an album, which I haven't had a chance to listen to yet. The song is called Angry, and I will put a YouTube link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 395. Stephanie left a voicemail that unfortunately had a lot of background noise, so I will read what she said. 
She said, I wonder if you had any episodes on dishonesty. I think that's been my major issue of just being dishonest in my life, really for the first time, and trying to figure out what behaviors are driving that and things. Thanks, Stephanie, for the voicemail, for the topic idea. I know we've done at least one episode, and I think more than one on honesty, which, you know, the flip side of dishonesty is honesty. So you might go check those out. Go to the recovery.show slash search, type in the word honesty, and I think at least a couple episodes will pop up. Julie, which is, this is a different Julie from the voicemail we had earlier, writes, Hi, Spencer. I'm an adult child of an alcoholic father who nearly died when I was 15. He was then in recovery for the rest of his life. I now have a sister who has virulent, in quotes, active alcoholism. Her psychiatrist called it that. Okay, that's why it's in quotes. Virulent active alcoholism. I was told about Al-Anon, and it took some time, but eventually I went to a meeting. I've been attending these meetings for a couple of months, and I do find them comforting, although I'm very much a newbie. Someone at these meetings showed me your podcast. Being a perfectionist, I started going through the podcasts in chronological order. They have been so informative, insightful, and helpful. At times, I actually prefer them to the meetings. It's like I get to have dinner at a share house every night, where you, Kelly, and Swetha all live. I'm invited into your world, and you are also open about your struggles and progress. I know it's 10 years on for you, but it was with the same shock and sadness that I have just listened to episode 47, which was the one about changes when Kelly and Swetha decided to leave the podcast. I know you say that in Al-Anon, you may not like us all, but you will come to love us, or something like that. But I both liked and loved you all and enjoyed the interactions and different views between you. I guess the college days have ended and everyone has moved on. I want to thank Kelly and Swetha for all they contributed, and this is Spencer, so do I. They contributed so much in the early podcast. I wouldn't have started it without them. Julie continues, I'm also grateful that you will continue the podcast, and at times it seems to be the only thing keeping me sane. I'm guessing your next phase will be a B&B with regular guests with a, a big, happy, smiley face. <laughs> B&B. I like that. I like that image. kind of was. You know, somebody would come in for an hour or two and we'd record an episode about a topic and then they'd go and somebody else or some couple people would come along. And yeah, and now I'm doing it, but I'm doing it on Zoom. So still is. Thanks for that image, Julie. And more from Julie. As I'm still in the very early days, I'm not sure what has been covered in subsequent podcasts, and I'm still working out how the Al-Anon program works. One question I have relates to therapy versus Al-Anon. At the moment, the meetings seem self-indulgent to me or like self-help therapy with what are possibly unskilled guides, parenthesis sponsors. I hear a number of participants say they are also in therapy. Their therapists all seem to support Al-Anon attendance. How do therapy and Al-Anon interact? Why would someone do one or the other or both? I guess I'm reticent to let someone into my life only to find they can't really help. I already have lots of friends who listen with empathy, so I don't need another friend. But I'm continuing with the meetings as hearing other stories does help, and I do feel lighter when I walk out. Spencer here, I think you may have at least in part answered your own question about how the meetings work with that sentence. You feel lighter when you walk out. And Julie concludes once again, thank you for the openness and honesty of all the contributors, it is very much appreciated. Best regards, Julie in Sydney, Australia. Thank you, Julie, for writing from Australia. I haven't done therapy, so I can't really compare and contrast as the essay question would have it. I think there are definitely issues that we may have in our life that Al-Anon can't help with. And all we can do in Al-Anon is share our own experience, strength, and hope. 
We're not therapists. We can share what we have found, share the tools we have found, share the steps, and you can decide, as we said in a recent episode about take what you like, which of those might work for you and which don't. And you may indeed have issues that require outside help and that a therapist is much more appropriate to address. I can't say that for you. Only you can decide that. I don't know. That's my my two cents on that. Maggie left a comment on the S Anon episode number 280, the show slash 280. Hi, I'm Maggie. I have a couples group also. I've so gratefully discovered, and I believe it's the most stunning of all couples groups. You can find out more info at cosarecovery.org. That's cosa, C-O-S-A hyphen recovery.org. And I will put that link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 395. Maggie continues, it is a 12-step program that follows S-Anon and the Anons program, but they also focus on different things that are faced within a relationship affected by sex addiction and the recovery from the effects of compulsive sexual behaviors on both sides, partners of and the addicts. They have couples groups three times a week called Healthy Intimate Relationship Meetings, in short called HIR. They focus on rebuilding or building for the first time intimacy and the discussion of the issues within the relationship while healing together, growing together, and building the relationship up again, and how to navigate the issue and tools that work. There is a different focus every week, and it's amazing you can attend with or without plus another one that is working the steps together, building intimacy. These are amazing meetings, and I so highly recommend them. I attend the Thursday and Saturday ones. The Tuesday is too early with work. Thanks for that resource, Maggie. And like I said, I'll make sure that the link that she posted is available at episode 280 about SNN. And I'll also put the link at this episode, therecovery.show slash 395. And that is the end of the mailbox for this episode. Thank you all. Amy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sharing your story, your experience, your strength, your hope very much your hope with us. And I know that your story will touch at least one person who's listening today. I hope so. Probably more. Probably more. (laughs) There's a lot of us parents out there. (laughs) No kidding. And what is your third song selection? Which I should mention, you can listen to all of these at therecovery.show slash 395. Okay. This last one is Chris Stapleton. My son suggested this one. It's called Starting Over. This symbolizes not only his starting over, but our starting over in our relationship, and even me starting over with him, mothering him in a different way. My my mother role, <laughs> it morphs, and it can be confusing. So I'm real happy to be in the starting over mode with my son. It says... The road rolls out like a welcome mat to a better place than the one we're at. And I ain't got no kind of plan, but I've had all of this town I can stand. And I got friends out on the coast. We can jump in the water and see what floats. We've been saving for a rainy day. Let's beat the storm and be on our way. And it don't matter to me. Wherever we are is where I want to be. And honey, for once in your life, let's take our chances and roll the dice. And I can be your lucky penny. You can be my four-leaf clover starting over. This might not be an easy time, 
these rivers to cross and hills to climb. And some days we might fall apart and some nights might feel cold and dark. But nobody wins afraid of losing and the hard roads are the ones worth choosing. Some day we'll look back and smile and know it was worth every mile. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them, too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.